Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is David Rose, a professor of economics at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. He's published academic work on a wide range of topics, including behavioral economics, economic ethics, the theory of cooperation, and the theory of the firm. He's here today to talk with me about his book, Why Culture Matters Most. David Rose, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. You know, your book focuses on uh, something I think is really important, uh, which obviously is why I was interested in it, that culture. Why culture matters to mass flourishing. And so I thought kind of as a social scientist, we're all about defining our terms. So I thought it would be a good idea maybe to start by defining those terms, what you mean both by uh, culture and by mass flourishing. Uh, that's an excellent first question. Uh, basically, uh, all animals uh, convey information uh, from generation to generation. Most animals convey most of that information, or in some cases, all of that information, genetically. So uh, ants, bees, snakes, frogs, uh, the list is very long of animals that uh, if they could have never once met their parents or never once been around any adults of their species, and yet they're good to go. Uh, the basic knowledge that they need to survive is kind of baked in the cake of their genes. Now, more advanced animals need a little bit of help or uh, need a little bit of training. Uh, we all know about uh, animals like, say, lion cubs and so on and so forth. We know they have no chance without their parents. And it isn't just because their parents provide and protect them. It's also because they teach them how to hunt and things like this. Now, much of their, what they know, if you've, if you've ever had a cat, you certainly know there's a lot of hardwired mm-hmm. information in there. But they also need to learn. Humans are unusual in that the amount of knowledge that we pass from gener- generation to generation is nearly all non-genetic. We pass a lot of genetic material, of course, but in terms of information, knowledge about how the world works and how to behave, that is passed uh, by teaching and learning across generations. And that was true for all uh, species uh, under the genus Homo. Uh, We're just the last one standing, but that makes us look uh, very different compared to most animals. So culture is important because culture refers to that knowledge which gets passed from generation to generation not through genes, but through teaching and through imitation. So people see what other people do, and then they learn, or someone teaches them something, and then they learn. So that's the, that's the critical factor about culture. Uh, as far as uh, mass flourishing, that is a phrase that is kind of intentionally vague. Um, the first time you really see it used in a worthwhile way that, that I can tell is by Edmund Phelps, who wrote a book a couple of years ago that had mass flourishing in the title. And the idea he's trying to get across is uh, there are societies where people are pretty happy, and they're pretty happy because they're materially well-off, and they're also kind of spiritually well-off. But it isn't just a prospering society in the sense that the society's rich because a few people at the top have a lot. And they have wonderful parks and, and great monuments, but a lot of people in the middle and in the bottom are miserable. 
No, he's talking about a society where there's widespread uh, prosperity or what we call general prosperity and widespread uh, spiritual happiness. In other words, people generally feel pretty good about their lives and optimistic about their future. So prosperity is rare. Uh, general prosperity is even rarer. And mass flourishing is the rarest of all. Right. And I, I, the reason I, I especially wanted to get your thoughts on mass flourishing is because oftentimes I think there's an assumption, uh, especially if you're talking to an economist, though maybe that's changed in, in recent decades, that this is all about material well-being. And, and that's, that's not uh, certainly it's a part of it, but that's not nearly the entire thing when we're talking about flourishing. I agree completely, and some economists have turned their attention, as as other social scientists, uh, to happiness research, uh, broadly construed, and, and even more tightly constructed concepts about what it takes for people to flourish. In fact, there's actually uh, a uh, an institute that's been created called the Eudaimonia Institute at Wake Forest University, uh, where it intentionally takes a step back to look at the broader context of what it takes for a society to help people flourish, both individually and collectively. It's a a very unusual and new kind of thing, but it's an attempt to ensure that some work gets done at that high of a level of generality. Because too often, social scientists, and especially economists, they zoom in so tight at the micro level that they miss things that are important at the macro level. Right. Now, your view, if, if I understand it from, from the book, is that the only truly reliable way for a society to get to that point of mass flourishing is through democratic capitalism, basically. And so do I have that right? And if I do, I guess, can you explain why you feel that's the only reliable way to get to that mass flourishing? Uh, sure. Um, the, the common phrase is democratic capitalism. In the book, I call it free market democracy, but I think we mean basically the same thing. Right. Uh, the argument I make is, look, there's a whole bunch of things that go into an individual and a community flourishing. There's many, many things that are required, all right? But nearly any person who would self-describe themselves as being someone who's living a flourishing life, uh, that they're happy with their life, almost any person that you that, that would self-describe themselves that way, if you said, what are the most important things to you in terms of your being happy? way up near the top is not suffering material deprivation. So you've got all the food, clean water, all those things that we really need or we're miserable. So you don't suffer any of that because it's hard to flourish if you're hungry and, you know, if you're dying of thirst or you've got a compound fracture and it's not that. Okay, that's, so that, that's kind of an obvious thing. It's near everybody's top of the list. But another thing that virtually any person who self-describes themselves flourishing is that they are at least reasonably free. No, nobody expects to be perfectly free. You don't want to live in a perfectly free society. Uh, that's, that's for sure, because uh, you know, you're kind of worried about what other people might do if they can do whatever it is they want to do. But you do want to live in a society that is substantively free. For the most part, you as an adult, at least, are the captain of your own ship. So those are, uh, among a set of equals, those are like two of the first among equals. So for me, the reason why free market democracy is so important is that you've got to have the free market system in order to enjoy a high level of general prosperity. You can have high prosperity 
in a society without free markets, you know, like the Soviet Union, they had some prosperity, but it was limited to a very small number of people. But in order to have general prosperity, ordinary people having uh, plenty of material goods, you really just have to have a free market system. There's really no other way around it. If there was any doubt about that, that the jury is in on that one. Right. Well, uh, but at the same time, you need democracy for the freedom. So that's why it's free market democracy. Right. So it, which is not to say that the free market democracies are, are perfect and awesome, but we don't know of any other better way to kind of make this reliably happen, essentially. I, that's very well put. And, you know, if you really love something, if you really appreciate its value, you worry about it being able to sustain itself. And, you know, I love the free market democracy. I think it's been the greatest thing for humans ever. Uh, so as a result, I take uh, great care to make sure it doesn't destroy itself. Nobody loves anything more than their own children, but that doesn't mean you let your children do whatever it is they want to do. Right. You, you protect them from themselves. So I think that it's very, very important to have a very clear sense of how a free market system can go awry. And the best way to understand that properly is to understand how it works, how it does the good that it does. Once you've got that all sorted out, it's much easier to see exactly how it might come up short and fail. Yeah. Now, in terms of how all this happens, I think there's, there's sort of what I guess I'd call conventional wisdom about this. And this conventional wisdom, at least for a long time, has put institutions at the center of everything. And to me, the basic idea and what I was, I've heard time and time again is, hey, as long as you have property rights, rule of law, some basic mechanisms of democracy, you know, free and fair elections, free speech, freedom of the press, if you can sort of drop all that in there, in any society, you're more or less good to go. But it's not nearly that simple, is it? It's not. Um, I am a big institutions guy. Uh, I, uh, one of my dearest mentors was Doug North, who won the Nobel Prize for his pathbreaking work on institutions. Uh, I absolutely get it, and I think they're very important. And I don't want anyone to think that this book makes the argument that institutions aren't important because culture is important. Right. Quite the opposite. It's because institutions are so incredibly important that culture is important. Why? Because many of these institutions are highly trust dependent. And I believe I show in my book that you can't have a high trust society without the right kind of culture. So culture is important because institutions are important. They're, they're, they're complements. They're not substitutes. Right. So that, that's the way I, I, I tend to look at it. Yeah, be, so now, as far as this uh, other comment you made, though, I, I've got a little metaphor that I like to use. There are many people who are very pro-market and very much into institutions, and they're, they're, uh, they like to make very sharp uh, assumptions about rationality and so on. And their basic presumption is that if you've got rational people and you've got the institutions right, uh, walk away and it'll be great. It's, it's like a perpetual motion machine. You get it all set up just right, and then you push, up, you push the ball down <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the ramp, and that's it. It goes forever. Um, I think that's incorrect. I think that institutions exist for a reason. They're created and they're sustained by continuous investment in human capital. And much of that human capital investment occurs through the mechanism of culture. And in the book, I explain why only the cultural transmission of some of this human capital will work. 
Right. I mean, it seems to me that a great example of this is when we've tried to kind of plop down these institutions in cultures that had some very different views or just some very different cultural settings, they didn't necessarily work all that well. And it seems to me that's sort of directly related to a lot of the stuff you talk you talk about in the book, particularly that issue of trust. Absolutely. Uh, there's a political scientist uh, named Barry Weingast, very famous guy. Many, many years ago, he was giving a speech somewhere, and uh, he, he had a little quip that I, I never forgot. He said, uh, hey, if you're ever traveling around the world and you, you lose your copy of the U.S. Constitution, no problem. Just swing by Latin America. There's a bunch of photocopies of it all over the place. But those countries didn't turn out like ours. So something else matters. And, and when you talk about trust, one of the one of the interesting things I think is you make this distinction between small group trust and large group trust. And, and one of the things you point about is so much of the research to this point has focused on small group trust, but that's a very different thing than the kind of large group trust that we need to uh, sustain and support these institutions, right? Uh, that's correct. Uh, we are indisputably a small group species. 99.999% of our evolution took place in groups that rarely were bigger than 80. Normally, we're less than 40. So we are a small group species. We have small group brains. We have small group ideas. We have small group moral sensibility. Uh, cooperation is extremely important. If we can't cooperate with other people, we die very quickly. So we're good at cooperating in small groups, and cooperating in small groups requires a small group trust. So we're good at sustaining trust in small groups. Uh, here's an, a quick and dirty example from uh, the popular media. There's a show uh, called The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. Um, if you haven't seen it, I'm sure at least you're aware of it. And it, it was a massively popular show. Now, what's going on with that show? And, and a lot of other shows that are kind of have this dystopic theme. Well, you'll notice that these people are always thrown by circumstances into situations where they're trying to survive in a terribly difficult situation, but there's only 12 of them or 15 of them or 8 of them. It's always a very small number. And these people kind of discover things about a quality of life that they don't otherwise have in modern society. They, they, they thrive in that small group situation where they work together constantly and are completely dependent on each other and care about each other in a way that is just not possible in a very, very large group society. So small group trust comes easily to us. Large group trust has no reason whatsoever to make sense to our genes. It, it doesn't. We did not evolve in large groups, so there's never been an evolutionary payoff to being able to sustain trust in large groups. So if we're going to have trust that works even among strangers in a large society, like somebody you pass on the street in Manhattan, if we're going to have that, it's not going to come from our genes. It's not going to be something that's hardwired. It's going to come from something invented uh, in our society, invented in our culture, invented by our cerebral cortex. And, and, and that, I think, the story of the rise of modern free market democracy is this long, slow, step-by-step uh, -step process whereby some of the smartest people to ever live kind of worked out uh, to a much extent without intention, by the way. The evolution is probably a better description. But they kind of worked out these ideas that kept pushing us in a direction of being able to sustain a 
great deal of harmony and trust in ever larger groups, and therefore we got ever more productive and were ever better uh, at producing uh, a high quality of life for a large number of people uh, and a high proportion of that large number of people in a big society. Yeah. And so the linkage here, to be clear, between large group trust and mass flourishing is that, uh, kind of to put things in economic terms, that's that when we have this high level of trust, it reduces transaction costs, as you mentioned in the book. Can you sort of flesh it out and explain to folks what exactly that means? Uh, great question. There's basically two levels to answer that question. The first is kind of direct. A transaction cost is just a cost that has to do with actually bringing off the transaction. So normally when we think of cost, we think of the cost associated with production, the cost associated with bringing the thing in question into existence. But there's also cost associated with actually getting that thing into the hands of people who want it. And in other words, costs that are directly attached to the transaction and not to production. So that that's called the transaction cost. And that cost of interacting with people you don't know uh, in order to sell the goods you've made or buy goods somebody else has made, that's fraught with uh, risk because people can cheat you, they can lie to you, they can set you up in lots of ways to take advantage of you. And so that kind of transaction requires a measure of trust. And the higher the amount of trust you have in the society, the lower is the perceived risk of that kind of transaction. Ken Arrow, who won the Nobel Prize uh, and was one of the most impressive economists of the 20th century, actually has a famous quote about that exact thing. Uh, now, the other sense in which uh, high trust society lowers transaction is that we have these mechanisms called institutions. And uh, some of them reduce uh, transaction costs just by regularizing things and making things standard and Kind of creating a pattern everybody can count on. So even if people aren't up to no good, we still have problems if everything is made up on the fly. So having a consistent pattern to do. But some of these institutions are themselves highly dependent on trust. So trust allows uh, transactors to not be afraid of each other at the micro level, but it also allows us to sustain institutions that make it easier to transact uh, at the macro. Right. And so the problem here, though, of developing this large group trust, as you mentioned before, it's not natural. And it seems to me, if I understand it correctly, one of the problems here is that there's a huge benefit to cheating, essentially, when when we have a high trust society. And the way I was thinking about it is sort of like if uh, I found a great way to take a, a penny from 100 million bank accounts, all of a sudden I'm a millionaire. But it's not like those 100 million people suffer any kind of substantial loss. I mean, heck, it's just a penny. And, and the bigger the group, then the worse this problem gets. Is, is, that, is that more or less kind of how it works? Uh, that's a great way of putting it. In fact, that example was immortalized in a, in a very popular movie called Office Space. And you may recall uh, yeah. that the, the main character gets into an argument with his girlfriend because they figured out a way to throw rounding error into a separate account and said, well, look, nobody, we're not really hurting anybody, but over time it, it accumulates it's a lot of money to us, it's not hurting anybody. How is that wrong? And the girlfriend kept saying, because it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you, you told people you wouldn't do things like that and you, and you lied and you're doing things like that. And I think that that was a, an outstanding little example of how easy it is for us to talk ourselves 
into thinking that a behavior uh, that is fundamentally unethical uh, can be justified because nobody's really hurt. And that's why it's, it, it's important that the content of moral beliefs make it uh, hard for people to make that justification. We want people to think like Jennifer Aniston, not Ron Livingston, right. uh, who, who is the, uh, the, the guy in the, in the, the movie. And so, so I think that what we have to do is we have to have a situation where people have prevailing moral beliefs that uh, beat this, really, I call it the empathy problem in my first book, but it's basically just a matter of arithmetic. It, 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 economists in general call it the one end problem. And the way you do that is, is you get people used to thinking that some things are categorically and inherently wrong as a matter of principle. So you're not supposed to do them, and it's not because of the effects they have. You're not supposed to do them because they're wrong things in and of themselves. Right. Because, I mean, individually it's rational, but it undermines that collective good. And so to sort of short-circuit that rational calculation, these cultural, you call them cultural tastes, which I, I love that phrase because it's like a taste. It, it, operate, it has to operate kind of pre-rationally, essentially, right? That is the big trick. And I, I wish I could take credit for it, <laughs> but I got it uh, from a, a good friend and a terrific economist. Uh, his name is Robert Frank. He wrote a book back in 1988 titled Passions Within Reason. And it was a very popular book among social scientists. And he worked out the point that, you know, no matter how hard you try, you cannot get trust out of the standard neoclassical economic story where everything is about incentives. It just doesn't work because if you have a situation where there's zero chance of detection uh, and there's going to be a high payoff, uh, the person, if they're just operating according to enlightened self-interest, will always behave in an untrustworthy way. And, but that's exactly the scenario where trust matters. You know, tr tr we, don't, we don't need to be able to trust people when we can observe them or measure stuff. We need to be able to trust them when we can't. And that was his point, and I think the literature never really got how important it was. But that, that, so his point was, in the end, although economists really hate to have explanations for things in terms of taste, in the end, you're going to have to have an unwillingness to act on opportunities to advance your interests. Uh, by doing something that's wrong. You're going to have to have that written in the taste themselves that are unwilling to go there because they believe it's inherently wrong. Right. And one way to inculcate this is, uh, one really good way, as you point out in the book, is to do it to people when they're young, which, which in your, your discussion of that, it made me think about that phrase that's uh, uh, often attributed to, to the Jesuits, uh, St. Ignatius, saying, give me the child for the first seven years and I will give you the man. I mean, and there's, it turns out there's actually a lot to that, isn't there? Uh, exactly. And uh, I, I think that the, the main thing is that I work out in the book about that is there's a kind of catch-22 problem. Uh, we like to think that we believe what we believe because we were exposed to ideas and we made decisions and we chose to believe what we believe and that's why we believe what we believe. And that's true for many of the things we do believe, of course. But there are many things that we believe and even more things that we feel that seem self-evident to us that we learned at such an early age we cannot remember ever having learned. So your dad might have or your mom might have just hammered on you that I, you don't want to be a liar, do you? You don't want to be a liar. Over and over and over again when you were very little. 
so that deception was drummed into your head to be something that was inherently wrong, inherently a scar on your character. And so you weren't someone who was reluctant to lie because you didn't want to hurt people. That wasn't the issue. You were reluctant to lie because you did not want to be a liar. And so that, it, that became part of your moral frame, your moral character. Uh, Aristotle talked about this in terms of virtue character. And, and uh, that's where that was. So if that's true, your unwillingness to lie is something that's already shaped the decision before we even get into the process of rational calculation, of weighing costs and benefits about what to do. That, the benefit of lying is never even going to be counted because that's already been denied right. an opportunity to affect your thinking. Right. And, and it seems to me what was interesting about your discussion of this, of, of, of kind of pushing these values into people when they're young, is it seems to me it's useful, if I understand correctly, for two main reasons or, or effective. Number one is that young minds tend to be more pliable in a lot of ways. But, but secondly, and this is what I found really fascinating, is that this argument that, well, the consequences of adopting these beliefs are kind of further into the future, so it's easier to do them when you're young, when you don't have to kind of take the heat for, except for having these beliefs. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to decide to do the right thing when it's going to hurt a little. It's another thing to do the right thing when it's going to hurt a lot. And a small child who's being taught that lying is a bad thing, being a liar makes you a bad person, you don't want to lie because you don't want to be a bad person. If that's happening, and because the child actually kind of writes that into their taste, and therefore it functions pre-rationally, if all that happens, that means that, you know, when they're 35 years old, they might have an opportunity to, to, to get $100 uh, million or something uh, if, they, if they're willing to do a little bit of deception. They can't possibly appreciate the cost of not being able to take that action as a child. And, law, and, and so that, that is a big trick. What, what it basically is doing is it's bundling up the power of temptation uh, while it's still possible to manage it and then getting the moral restraint put in. Uh, into action through moral taste so it doesn't even come up because one, if it does come up and we're hey come on you know <laughs> yeah. you and i a bag of a hundred million dollars on mark bills yep. you know <laughs> that's too much right so there there's limits but we don't need people to be perfectly trustworthy we just need them to be trustworthy almost all the time with respect to almost all the kinds of things they come across luckily bags of hundred million dollars of unmarked bills is not a frequent problem yes. Now, I, I mentioned I mentioned the Jesuits before, and you talk about religion in the book, and obviously religion is a a strong source of cultural beliefs for a lot of folks. And and in thinking about this, one of the reasons it seems to me is that you know if you believe in a religion that says, "Hey, God's watching," you could go to hell or something like that. All of a sudden, that that rational calculation actually is turned on its head because if you believe that, well, then. It's not actually rational to 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 be untrustworthy because hey if you're you know eternal damnation that's a pretty big that's a pretty big cost in the future that you need to 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 calculate in there right That's true and both the prospect of an afterlife that could involve eternal damnation in in contrast to heaven and that prospect of a god that is a monitor everywhere and always both of those things push the ball further down the field of expanding the set of transactions over which 
we can trust people and the size of groups within which we can trust people. But it's still not enough. And here's why. Uh, if, if you believe that God believes that what you really should be trying to do is to create the greatest good for the greatest number, if that's, if that's the thing, then you could convince yourself that you should behave in an opportunistic way, an untrustworthy way, uh, in order to make it possible to advance some kind of positive moral action that otherwise couldn't be done. You could talk yourself into that. Uh, and as a result, the, if you believe that that was consistent with what your religion required or your God required, there'd be no issue. So I do believe some religions are more prone to greater good rationalization type of thinking, uh, even though they have certainly have a God that's a, you know, a pervasive monitor, and many of them have an afterlife. It doesn't matter because they don't think they're doing anything wrong. But just because you don't think you're doing something wrong in your heart doesn't mean you're not behaving in a way that undermines the ability to sustain trust in a large society. Yeah, you know, I thought that was a really important part of the book. You, you mentioned a greater good rationalization because, of course, when I was reading that, I, I immediately thought of myself because I do that, you know, all the time. I think all of us do. And so we're get, hardwired to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, it gets back to that point, right, that you make about why it's so important that these cultural beliefs, this trustworthiness be baked into us and it's not even a part of the rational decision-making process because we're awesome at rationalizing our own individual self-interest. We are outstanding. In my first book, I actually worked out some examples of that, of how uh, greater good rationalization for the greater good. In other words, you truly are only concerned with doing what you think God wants you to do, doing what you think is best for other people and not yourself. I work out how over time that uh, can evolve into uh, what's good for what's good for me is what's good for society, and it becomes greater good rationalization, you know, for your nieces and nephews, yeah. and then your kids, mm -hmm. and then yourself. Yeah. Now, uh, at a number of points in the book, you talk about guilt. Essentially, the argument, as I understand, is that culture, at least in this aspect, works by generating these completely involuntary feelings of guilt if you do something that's untrustworthy, if you're a liar, basically. And, and I was wondering about that. You know, is it just guilt? Because, you know, sometimes I do something good and I feel pride for being a good person. I mean, is that is that part of it or is just guilt much stronger than any kind of sense of positive motivation for doing these things? The positive side of the ledger is important. There's no such thing as a person who is highly moral but has absolutely no concern with taking positive moral action. So this is one of the most subtle points uh, about what it takes to create a high-trust society. I stress guilt so much because I stress moral restraint so much. Right. I stress moral restraint so much because what we can't have is a situation where the desire to take positive moral acts becomes fodder for greater good rationalization. In other words, you end up in a situation where if you lie to achieve a particular thing, you'll feel guilty about lying, but you need to do that in order to come up with the resources to do this positive moral act. And if you don't do this positive moral act when you could have, you'd feel even more guilty. We don't want that calculation to occur. 
because there's no end to the ability to talk yourself into believing that the guilt that you would experience on the positive act will be greater than the guilt you'd experience on the lie. It's too easy to make that switch. So we need a crisp divide. And logicians and philosophers and mathematicians all agree that the right kind of concept to capture that idea is what's known as lexical primacy. And all it means is that some things come first, some things come second. And it's only after the things that come first are completely dealt with that you even consider the things that come second. So one of the requirements for having the kind of moral restraint that can sustain a high-trust society, in my view, is that the obedience of prohibitions against negative moral action, that comes first. There, you can never justify a negative moral action by the good it might do through the positive side. You, you, moral merit only starts to count if you've got a perfect score on not doing the don't. So the reason for the guilt, it isn't that I don't believe those other virtues aren't important and so on, but I do believe it's very dangerous and corrosive to treat doing good and doing bad on the same number line. And this is not just an academic point. The way we teach uh, character and morals in K-12 today, through, I'm talking about through massive federal grant-sponsored teaching programs and research, is to say things like, hey, don't, teach, don't tell your kids that telling a lie is bad. Teach them that being honest is good. This is an actual quote from someone who's a national leader in this area. Now, most people would say, well, I guess that's one way to look at it. Yeah. But it isn't just one way to look at it. It's a way that allows the brain to dive in headfirst with greater good rationalization. And as we've just mentioned together, uh, well, we're genetically programmed to do that. We're really good at that. We don't want to go down that road. Yeah, you know, it was interesting to me because when I, when I first encountered your arguments about this, I, I felt a certain resistance because I was like, well, no, I, moral advocacy, that's what I want to do. I want to be positive and do things and so forth. And so there was a... There was a resistance I had to kind of fight through to see that, I mean, that connection you make between the this kind of negative, the restraint, and that greater good rationalization. So I just thought that was an incredibly important part of the book. I'm, I'm glad you felt that way because, you know, if you, if you are somebody who really, really wants to be a moral person, then you are not uh, dissuaded by the fact that the bar for being moral is higher than you thought it was. And so all the positive moral acts that you want to do because it, it, in your heart, it makes you feel good to be a good person. And in my, in my opinion, the only true virtue is virtue for which the act is its own reward. Doing stuff because it'll earn your way into heaven, it counts for nothing in terms of moral virtue in my view. What matters is, do, does, it, does it truly make you happy to help this person? Does it truly make you happy to address this problem? That, that's the only thing that matters. But doing that on the cheap by cheating is not, certainly cannot be as morally meritorious as doing that where you personally bear the full expense of your virtue because you would never, ever cross those other lines. It's a much, much higher bar to get over. But if you had a choice between living in a society where people were eager to help but didn't mind lying and cheating and stealing, as long as that society's really small, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But if that society's big, you would trust me. Very quickly, you'd say, I'll take the society 
where I never find anybody's knife in my back, but I'm on my own. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, kind of circling back, all of this, of course, relates to mass flourishing through that, that mechanism of, of trust, these cultural beliefs. And, and when you talk about large group trust, there's another distinction that I think is really important. And, and you make this distinction between what you call generalized bilateral trust and trust in the system. And they're two, but they're, they're related in a sense, but they're two distinct things. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the distinction and, and why each, type, each one of these types of trust is so important. Generalized bilateral trust is trust the way we normally think of it. One person bumps into another person. Do they trust that person or not? In a small group, that's a fairly easy thing to sustain. People know each other. They probably care about each other. Uh, even if they don't particularly like each other, they would still feel guilty about me doing measurable harm to the other one. Um, and at the same time, uh, an economist uh, or a game theorist would point out that in a small group, the probability of repeat play is so high that it's even in their own best interest to not take a chance on making the other person mad. Okay, But in large groups, this ability to trust other individuals point to point uh, is harder to sustain because there's a much higher likelihood you may never see this person again. Uh, so this person's not in a position to do anything to you and not in a position to have even repeat play affect happen. So that's generalized bilateral trust. The bilateral part is this person to person or firm to firm or, you know, or person to firm or firm to person. So that's, that's the bilateral part. Generalized means it involves behavior that people will uh, engage in across the whole of a society. It's not just specific, it's not personal. Um, generalized bilateral trust is a beautiful thing. If you go to high trust countries, you can feel it. It's in the air, it's there right from the start. Uh, you walk down the streets of Stockholm, you feel it, it's there. Um, and, and there are there are many reasonably high trust places in the United States too. I'm not knocking in the United States on this, but I'm just saying it's it's hard to get over the Sweden bar for people who who study trust. Trust in the system is not inconsistent with it, but it does it's, it's a little different kind of thing. Trust in the system is having faith and confidence that the rules of the game of society don't change. And if they do change, they don't change for arbitrary, capricious, or self-serving reasons. They change because there was a, a legitimate reason for them to be changed. And those with power changed them in an effort to promote uh, the common good. But otherwise, they don't change. So trust in the system is something that's very hard to sustain in, say, a dictatorship in a very fluid kind of country. You just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know. If you buy this property and register it with the government, you might actually be worse off. The government might use that list to figure out whose property to confiscate. I mean, that's a terrible world to be in. And so when you have low trust in the system, you have very weak incentives. But that's, it's a different thing. It's not about trusting your fellow man. And one thing that's important is to understand there are, there, there, there are countries that have high bilateral trust and low, and countries that have high trust in the system and low, and all four of those possibilities you think of it as a two by two matrix, all four of those possibilities exist. Right. And I mean, when we just talk about trust in general, uh, it seems to me, uh, especially if we're looking at trust in institutions, that looking at some of the survey data, at least that I've seen, uh, we see a big change, it looks to me, like in the starting, oh, somewhere in the mid 60s. And now 
based on, again, some of the data I've seen, the only big institutions we really trust are, uh, are the military, and that's pretty strong majorities in the United States, at least, uh, and kind of small minority, uh, sorry, small majorities trusting the police and small businesses. But pretty much aside from that, there are large majorities who just don't really trust, again, in the United States, that just don't really trust any big institutions, especially government. And so you have some thoughts about kind of what's behind the decline in trust. And I wonder if you could, you know, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's not just the United States. Uh, falling trust in the system is basically uh, the one sentence answer to what's the deal with Brexit. Yeah. You've got a, you've got a group, you know, a whole nation of people who just say, Hey, you know, I know in theory, it'd be good to be doing all this coordinating with these other countries and this and that, you know, on paper, it sounds like a good idea, but I just don't trust them. no more. We might've 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, not anymore. So, uh, falling trust in the system is very, very dangerous because when you have falling trust in the system, people start to scramble for good second best alternatives. And uh, I'm not saying this is happening in the United States or England necessarily, but some people are very worried about the rise of right wing thinking in the world. And I think some of that is in the in the background of their mind, in a foggy kind of way, they're saying, hey, in a world where people are pretty confident that institutions in general and government institutions in particular are pretty solid, pretty predictable, pretty trustworthy, you don't hardly ever have right-wing stuff. But in war- it's, it's in worlds where you don't have high trust in the system that that vacuum gets filled by right-wing stuff. And I think that that vague feeling is not incorrect i think there is that that is a possibility that is a problem um but trust in the system uh falling as it is in in not just the united states but in the west i believe is the result of moral beliefs evolving from the kinds of moral beliefs did a good job producing that that you know we talked earlier about lexical primacy where not doing the don'ts comes first and it's only after that is attended to perfectly that you even consider doing the do's that kind of thinking was actually pretty evident in the prevailing moral beliefs of countries in the west particularly in the united states uh, at the end of the 19th century that was pretty strong the problem uh, with that kind of belief is it makes it very, very difficult to use the power of government to do things that you think are good. So the, the progressive movement in the late 19th century, uh, these people were incredibly smart. They, they were incredibly smart, incredibly perceptive, and incredibly uh, persistent and patient. We should, we should, uh, we should give the progressives a great deal of respect because these people were able to change a society pretty rapidly and pretty yeah. substantively. And I think that what they did is they understood that they could not effectuate the kind of society that they wanted unless they could use the democratic process to undertake positive moral actions and therefore go beyond what had been the historical norm of the democratic process in the United States and in the West which is just to address market failure problems, things that we can't do very well through voluntary transactions, things like national defense and 
uh, you know, having a police force, having a court system, so on and so forth. So uh, their view, their idea of a perfect society involved doing way more than just attending to that night watchman concept of the government. So they had to, they had to change that thinking. And so they very strongly attempted to inculcate into the population uh, a kind of thoroughgoing consequentialist view of morality, which is not that difficult to do because that's the one we're born with. Right. So, so it's essentially on the, on the governmental level, kind of making that switch from a focus on the restraint to a focus on positive moral advocacy, which opens the door to all of that uh, greater good rationalization and that sort of thing, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, just you quick- said it a lot faster and better than I did. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, well, you mentioned market failure and, and that, again, I was really resistant to, I mean, I'm, I'm coming at things from sort of a left of center perspective. And so when you made this argument that basically, and maybe this is oversimplifying that if we, if we want to have sustained trust in government, that means essentially that government has to essentially limit itself to addressing market failures and not going past that. And again, I was really resistant to that argument. We'll maybe get to that in a minute, but to start with, can you just kind of uh, explain a little bit more to folks what you mean by a market failure so that they kind of get a sense of what the scope of government activity would be kind of based on this idea? Sure. Uh, one of the most important reasons for teaching people as early as possible and as, as high a proportion of the population as possible how a free market economy works and why it's such a great thing and so on and so forth. One of the most important reasons for doing all of that is that only by getting that all sorted out that you can then fully appreciate precisely where it is that a free market system will almost inevitably come up short. So basically what happened was we had this uh, very, very difficult technical proof uh, done in the late 50s called the Arrow de Brew proof. Uh, and it basically showed that under a given set of assumptions, uh, the free market system will produce a set of prices that will induce a pattern of resource allocation that will do the best job promoting the common good. They worked this out mathematically. They both won Nobel Prizes mm-hmm. for doing it. It was a big deal. It's one of the most important achievements of any human in any field. So it, it's a big deal. But here's the thing. There's a lot of assumptions that are required for that proof to go through. If any of those assumptions are violated, then all bets are off. And so we have this a body of knowledge in economics that's pretty big and pretty well developed called the theory of market failure. And it basically is looking at all the possible ways that that proof doesn't go through. And so when we and here's a here's a very simple example. One of the things that's required for that proof to go through is that if I make something and sell it to you and you buy it from me and consume it, nobody else in society is affected in any way, shape, or form. All right? That's true for a lot of things. But, you know, if I'm producing some kind of an industrial product and I dump my waste into the river, and that's that's what I do to save money, well, that's not true anymore. So in economics, we call that an externality, and it's a very common, pervasive problem. And in many cases, uh, the only way to practically deal with it 
is to use government power to change things in various ways to account for that externality. There's a lot of cl really, really clever ways of doing it. Economists have really done a lot of wonderful things uh, for society, and they don't get any credit for it because people don't understand market failure. But the, the pollution, when I was a kid, pollution was an important problem in our country. Pollution is not an important problem in our country. Uh, global warming might be an important problem, but that's a, that's a little different thing than the pollution problem. But at least most of the water is clean. Most of the air is reasonably clean. It, it, it's, it's, let's just say it's way better. So market failure, all these kinds of things that if you just left the market to itself, you would get to a spot that the vast majority of people in society would say, wow, isn't there anything we can do about this? This is a bad outcome. And, uh, you know, the, the classic example is something called a public good. This is a good uh, that, produce, that, you know, when I consume it, it doesn't keep you from consuming it and vice versa. And at the same time, it's a good I can't keep people from consuming. National defense is kind of like the, the biggest, uh, most clearest example of that. We don't, we don't want to leave national defense to the free market system. Uh, it, there's no way we uh, are not invaded long ago if that's what we did. So that, that that's market failure is about all it's about uh, all of these situations in which the critical assumptions for free market society giving us the best outcome are are not met. Some are are a set of them are not met, and when that happens, economists have worked up ways to to, to quantify the problem and address the problem. It's, it's really cool stuff. And you know, when I started thinking about this in terms of uh, current policies of and things that government's doing in a lot of cases it seems to me that's not not all of certainly but the bulk of what government does you can at least make a case that it's in some way addressing uh, a market failure maybe and maybe that you know maybe that approach is is in itself flawed certainly but i was wondering if you could you know since the argument essentially is that if government goes beyond addressing these market failures and starts essentially picking winners and losers, then we start to lose trust. That, that, that makes sense to me. Can you think of, can you give me some examples of maybe current policies or things that government does that go beyond just trying to correct for market failures? There is an implicit understanding of market failure uh, in, in our history, and that's why government was so limited for so long. Sure. So you are quite right that if you look at, particularly if you look at the federal government, uh, an awful lot of what's going on is either clearly addressing a market failure or could be rationalized uh, as a market failure, and that is, that is correct. So there's two, two elements to this. One is a categorical example, something that's clearly not a market failure issue. Uh, and then the other is something that it, 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 the, the assumptions required to say it's a market failure are met, but you aren't able to demonstrate a compelling case for government intervention because the benefits of addressing the market failure problem uh, don't exceed the cost. Now, as far as a categorical thing, think of almost anything government can do. Uh, that's a good thing. People like, nobody's against it in, you know, at the margin. But the government really doesn't have any business in it. Uh, Robert Byrd, uh, the senator from West Virginia, was was no, you know famous for being able to get things done for oh, yeah. his state. <laughs> and, you know, and and again, all of these things are virtuous. At the, none of this is terrible stuff. 
like, so let's just have a museum for blah, blah, blah. It's a museum that nobody ever thought of having and nobody, nobody really felt like they needed it. But once it's there, it's there. Well, then we're all paying for that. And, you know, the people who get to go to that museum because they live near it and the people that work for it, they all benefit. The rest of us pay for it, don't even know what exists. So you got stuff like that. And I would agree that that's relatively minor stuff. The bigger problem is attempts to uh, use market failure logic to rationalize something as requiring a great deal of government involvement uh, when it really isn't there. Here's a, here's a very big example. Social Security. I, when it comes to Social Security, I believe it's extremely important that we get clear in our mind that Social Security is trying to do two separate things. And because it's trying to do both things at the same time, it fails at both. The most people believe in the virtue of Social Security because most people have in their mind, hey, we've got something that if all else fails, no matter what, whether it's your fault or somebody else's fault, it doesn't matter. If you get to be really old and you go into work to take care of yourself, it's not practical, and you just don't have enough money to live, you're going to get enough money to live. So it's kind of like a welfare program for old people that is different than other forms of welfare because we presume that you can't work, which is a, a reasonable presumption. We can argue about what age that would be, but it's not a crazy idea. There is huge, huge support for that, okay, even uh, I, I, on the left and on the right, okay? But Social Security is not just that. Social Security is also a kind of forced retirement. And it turns out that in order to make the forced retirement system part of it work, you end up having to pay far less money to the truly poor. So social, the thing that Social Security can do that most directly and meaningfully solves a market failure problem, which is providing some kind of an insurance market for the inability to be ready for retirement, uh, they, and, and, and we aren't as able to solve that legitimate problem because we're trying to do something that really isn't a market failure problem. Most people, in most cases through most of human history, have been able to figure out how to provide for their retirement. Those things should be unbundled, and if they were, we would all pay much lower Social Security taxes, and truly poor people would get way more money. It wouldn't be that expensive because we don't have that many really poor old people. We've got some, and their situation is dire, and it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed fully. But right now, we don't do that because we're too busy pretending that people who are really rich need to get the largest possible check because Social Security is just a retirement. That's a mistake. That's an example where government is trying to do a good thing it, you know, just by making sure everybody's got a retirement uh, for them. Uh, we're trying to do a nice thing, but since we're not really solving a market failure problem for at least half that story, it undermines our ability to solve the genuine market. Right. And, and it certainly makes it politically easier to do it that way than to do some sort of a than some sort of alternative that might make more make more sense from a policy perspective. Well that's exactly what happened. Yeah. In the FDR administration there was a huge debate, huge fight over this. Uh there was the wing that said, look, we need to take care of these old people, blah, 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 and so on. And then there there was this other group that said we have to have everybody in the system or as soon as the Republicans are back in power, they will repeal it. We have to make it feel like a pension plan that everybody's paid in. The fact that the numbers don't make any sense and that they paid almost nothing in, 
It, they'll overlook that because it's self-serving. And it worked. And that was a huge mistake. Many people in the FDR administration understood exactly, including FDR. FDR was extremely worried about the harm that could be done to our culture with government policy. He agonized about this. You know, it seems to me that even, you know, if you accept the logic that you kind of put forward in the book, and I think you make a, a pretty strong case about how when government kind of tries to do more of these things, it, it sort of develops, people develop this lack of trust in the system, which I think, you know, pretty clearly we're seeing today. But I think the what about or the how about question is, well, what about uh, income inequality, I mean, inequality issues and also, you know, helping out groups that have been systematically discriminated against. And I think those are sort of the two, if someone reading this book, especially from the left would say, well, yeah, but how do we deal with these two big problems of, you know, uh, civil rights and essentially inequality without government essentially uh, stepping in to redress, uh, you know, inequalities that have you know been built in, baked in in the past? Uh, that is a, a really good question and a really unpleasant question. Yeah. And it's a question that I'm happy to not have to answer. <laughs> and uh, yeah. but I'll do the best that I, okay. I can uh, with the question. Uh, let's deal with them separately. Sure. Uh, let's deal with uh, the racial inequality and all and, you know that kind of thing. The civil rights issue. Turns out, by the way, that I'm actually on the U.S. Civil Rights Commission or the Missouri Advisory. Oh, wow. I'm in my second term, so I've been you know I've had to learn a lot of the this law and this stuff, and it's very fascinating, a chapter of human history. And I and I even mentioned in my book that we can look to the civil rights movement of the United States for inspiration uh, for how a society can change its culture pretty quickly in a way that, looking back from our perspective now, almost virtually everyone says was a, made us a better people, a better society. Uh, and, and, and I think the environmental movement was another one. Uh, that, that attitudes, our culture changed pretty fast on that. So this idea that, you know, if, if somebody writes a book that says culture matters most, they're basically saying be a defeatist because you can't change anything because <laughs> it's all culture. That's absolutely untrue. Culture right. can change. Okay, so let's get back to the uh, issue of, say, racial discrimination or gender discrimination. There is a way to deal with those things that's completely consistent with the view of duty-based moral restraint and government that exists to address market failure, uh, not to do good. And the way to do that is to pass legislation that says, hey, you can't do this stuff. It's illegal. If you do it, uh, you can be sued by the person who's harmed because we've provided a pretext for court settlement, or you can be criminally prosecuted, potentially because we don't tolerate this stuff in this country anymore, period. That is hugely important, <clears throat> and it's something that would, would uh, enjoy widespread support. By the way, it is something uh, that Martin Luther King supported uh, in contrast to uh, overt favoritism. There were many people in the civil rights movement who were very, very, very stridently against any kind of quotas, any kind of proactive uh, attempt to advance things. They wanted, what they wanted was they wanted 
equal opportunity. They wanted a level playing field. They did not want to tilt the playing field at all in their favor, even if there were past injustices to be made up for, because they understood that the second you did that, you'd have this large group of people who were inclined to say, hey, what we were doing was wrong, and it's got to stop, and it's got to stop now. Those people were 100% behind you, and then almost immediately, you've now turned it into a situation where their kids might suffer because the group that had been harmed kids are now being benefited. There were black leaders who spoke on this stridently, including, but not limited to, Martin Luther King. He wanted equality, period. He had tremendous faith in the American free market system, and he had tremendous faith in the black community that as long as they got a fair deal, they'd catch up very quickly. And every bit of evidence shows that that's exactly what was happening uh, pretty much from 1900 on. It was amazing the strides that were being made. Now, the government institute, most of the injustice that was being done to minorities in the United States was the most heavy-handed and pernicious injustice, injustice was, was being done by government. It was government laws, like Jim Crow laws are the mm-hmm. classic example. Sure. But that is what produced most of the frustration because laws have power. They have the power of the state. It's a very, very scary, oppressive, demoralizing thing. To think that the police officer, who's supposed to be the person you can go to when you have a problem, that person's actually going to mete out some weird conception of justice that keeps you from being able to get a job. That, that's horrible. Okay, so I think people underestimate how much of a role that misguided government played in subjugating people of color in this country and women for a very long time. So simply withdrawing that and reversing that, saying that's not going to happen anymore, number one. And number two, if you participate in that, you're going to be sued or you're going to go to jail. That it has nothing to do with favoritism. That has to do with no more favoritism going the other way. Now, with respect to income equality and all that sort of thing, um, I understand that feeling, and I think there's a good reason why people feel like equal outcomes is the most uh, important thing, and that's because if you remember I said uh, at the very beginning, we are a small group species. We're undeniably a small group species. We evolved in small groups. We have small group brains. We have small group values. We think in small group ways. Now, let's go back to, I th- let's say, 25,000 years ago. All right? Okay. This is long before the agricultural revolution. Oh, people are planting stuff every now and then, but they're not dependent on it because if they are, they'll, they'll be wiped out by a, a, a massive climate change which happened a lot before the Holocene period. So hunter-gatherers, but clearly human, homo sapien, hunter-gatherers, 25,000 What does that group look like? That's probably about 35 people, 18, 35, 40 would be big, okay? The people in that group would have specialization that was almost all only sexually driven. In other words, women did a set of things, men did a set of things. But the set of things that men did, all the men did, and almost in equal measure. And the set of things that women did, all women did. Well, if everybody's doing the same thing, and everybody's genetically programmed to want to do what they need to do, I've never seen, and I guarantee you, you have never heard a cheetah bellyache about running or a fish (laughs) bellyache about swimming, right? right? 
And young human males, they don't bellyache about practicing bows and arrows and hunting animals. So we are genetically programmed to want to do the things that we need to do to contribute to our group. Otherwise, the group dies. And the same thing goes for the females. Their, 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 their genes were driving them to want to do the sorts of things that needed to be done on their side of the ledger. Both things were required. Withdrawal either. The species ends immediately. There's this, this idea of one being more important than the other is complete not. Okay? So, but here's the point. The big point is this. When we're all basically doing the same thing, splitting the surplus of the benefit of working together, which is efficient, that's what produces the best returns to the group, is exactly the same as splitting the outcome in total. And I have little mathematical examples that I give in lectures and I give the students to, to, to highlight this out. Many years ago, in fact, you can, you can find, uh, I can give you a link after we're done with the interview. Uh, where people can see a 19-minute lecture on why this is true. But the bottom line is, is when people are different and you're maximizing the size of the cooperative surplus, which is what makes us able to have more stuff per person, okay? you're going to have a different payoff. But when people are the same, splitting the final output, everybody getting the same amount, is observationally equivalent to an equal split of the surplus. So this, this rule that is best for the group undeniably, ends up being the same thing as splitting everything equal. So I think our genes over 100,000 years or so were just recognized this and therefore gave us a strong preference for just saying there's no reason to not split this all equally. Right. We're all doing the same thing. Right. And so that we feel that in our gut. Now, so that's, that's why we have the impulse part. So then the question is, why is it a bad idea? Well, the answer is, it's a bad idea because what really matters is not whether the guy down the street makes 85000 and you make only 65000 That does not matter. What matters is mm, your kids are not getting uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day of the week, and, and, and these other kids are. That's what really matters. So what really matters is attending to basic needs and making sure that that is something that is always attended to. And by the way, this is something about which there is tremendous agreement. I, was, I just did an interview the other day where somebody brought this up, and I, and I said, well, you don't know the half of it. Uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize in 1974, is a very well-known uh, economist. A lot of conservatives love him. Uh, libertarians in particular love him. Hayek was absolutely 100% in favor of social safety net. 100%. So was Milton Friedman. So was Ronald Reagan. So was JFK. So was FDR. Why? Because at some level, in their mind, somewhere in that fog, they understood that falling below certain thresholds produces extreme misery, and that is the first order of business. Let's, let's not have anybody in extreme misery or extreme threat to survival. Let's get, take care of that first. So attending to the basic needs and to get them well over the bar so people don't live in the fear of that, that is the most important thing. Once you get beyond that, you're now getting, by the way, the moral virtue of removing misery is not a discussion we need to waste time on. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. We all, we all say, yes, that's a good thing. We can argue about how to do it, but no, that's a good thing. Now, once you get into the realm of everybody has plenty of good food, everybody has a place to sleep at night, they're not out in the wet, everybody has a place to go get that broken arm set, they don't need to be in agony for the next 25 years, and so on. Everybody gets to learn how to read and do basic arithmetic so that they, they have the ability to go make a living for themselves. Once we get those things met, then the differences are about a very different thing than alleviating misery. And you're, you're starting to get into a dubious zone of moral virtue because, you know, there are many religions that hold that a preoccupation with not having anybody make any more than you do is just envy, which is a sin. And it's, that's not a crazy, you know, marginal religion. I mean, there are some right, major no, yeah. religions Absolutely. that feel that. Yeah. So, well, I think we need to deal with the thing that matters most first, uh, and then we can worry about that other stuff later. But what we'll find out is if we only focus on that stuff at the front end, we'll have so much money from people never giving up on the status game of making more than everybody else. We'll have so much money that we'll be able to actually raise that safety net bar up and up and up and up and up over time. And so it's almost not even a safety net. And I really wanted to, I'm glad you kind of spoke at length on that because I really wanted to emphasize that point because on a sort of a superficial reading, uh, you might say, well, conclude that, well, what, what, what he's saying essentially is that the government should be some sort of, you know, uh, uh, Ayn Randian sort of, you know, completely minimalist sort of thing. And, and I, I didn't get the sense that that was your argument, but I'm glad you were able to kind of expand on that, certainly. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I usually don't get the chance to talk at length about those kinds of things. Well, you know, and, and one final thing I, I wanted to ask you about. So I, I found myself largely in agreement with the argument you make in the book, but it, it made me come back to a, a pretty big question. Uh, and it's, it's, I think, the big question, really, is if, as I believe, and I think you believe, that we've had some, uh, I don't know if you want to call it degradation or changes in our culture that have had a pretty significant negative effect on large group trust, especially that trust in the system, well, then what can we do to, you know, kind of strengthen uh, that cultural commons? And it seems to me that while we have examples, certainly, of the culture changing very quickly in, you know, you mentioned civil rights and environment, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. And sometimes it can be the work of really generations to kind of build this up again. And so I was wondering, and this is this is a heck of a hard question <laughs> to to leave you with, but what do you what do you suggest? Um it's a it's a great question. It's the big one. Yeah. Uh, I've had conversations with Jonathan Hyde about this. A uh, very very thoughtful guy who has deep insight into how people's minds work, and is is a guy who who tries very very hard uh, to really listen to all sides of the argument. Uh, so I have a lot of respect for John. Um, we solved this problem in the past in a particular kind of way, and it's not clear we're going to be able to use that way in the future. The way we solved it in the past was unintentionally, but thankfully and almost miraculously, through religion. Mm -hmm. Right. And we had a kind of set of religions that 
were roughly consi uh, consistent with what I call the moral foundation of economic behavior, which is the title of my first book. Roughly consistent with that, not by design, just happened to work out that way. And so it resulted in kind of, from the individual's point of view, an overinvestment into human capital to produce highly trustworthy people. And so we benefited from this, even though it really wasn't part of the plan. That's a lovely thing. I'm glad it happened. We, we live in a, a much better society than otherwise because it happened. But just because that's how it happened doesn't mean we can use it again. So I think what we need to do now is we need to, number one, recognize how easy it is to take the high-trust society for granted. It's very easy to take for granted. And when you do that, you set yourself up for failure because if it turns out that it's hard work to have a high-trust society and you take it for granted, what's the chances you're going to keep up making adequate investments yeah. into human capital to get it done? It's very unlikely. So number one, you need to not take it for granted. The best way to not take it for granted is to understand how the high-trust society supports free market democracy and how free market democracy supports mass human flourishing. That, 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 once you connect those dots, then all of a sudden you feel like, hey, you know what? Part of my doing my part to make a good society for my children and my grandchildren is to make these investments. And so what we need to do is kind of replace the, the heavy lifting that religion used to do with science. Now, we do not need to displace uh, religion. Uh, I am, I'm not making that argument at mm -hmm. all. Okay? Uh, I don't think that uh, science is superior to religion in getting this job done. In fact, I would argue the opposite. Uh, I'm a big fan of Steven Pinker's work, and I'm a big fan of his, of, of his book, Enlightenment Now. But one thing that we do kind of part company on a little bit is this idea that religion is somehow getting in the way of rationality. I actually have an entirely new line of work that shows how the evolution of religion in the West advanced rationality. It literally changed the way our brain works and helped produce the high trust society. So I'm not arguing that we need to have science instead of religion. What I'm arguing is we need to do a better job uh, helping science complement religion to bring us up to this new level uh, where people feel, uh, just as you feel compelled to yell at your kid for throwing a bag out the back window, right. says, what okay. are you doing? Yeah. I mean, you would be mad. You'd be embarrassed. You would be mad, right? The kid would, well, why are you so mad at me, Dad, right? Uh, we, need, we need parents. And why is that? That one bag is not changing the world. Yeah, because you feel it in your bone that you are not living up to your obligation as a good person who's trying to build a good community for the future. If you don't make sure your kids know that there are some lines you don't cross, well, that exact frame of mind. And by the way, we could tell the same story if your kid had said something really nasty about a person of different race right. or yep. different ethnic group. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you would yell. I mean, it would, it would, it would, you wouldn't even have to think about it. Yeah. Right. Well, there's no reason why that exact same kind of instinctive, immediate uh, response couldn't be associated with making sure your kids 
uh, when they when they start to tell a story about how well they could do this because even though it's lying, blah blah blah, blah and you, you might say, well, that's an interesting way of looking at it. That's how we would do it now, most most people, and that's certainly the way they're being taught. Cool. It should be like, no. I mean, you should just jump all over them and say that is the that is a path to a terrible place, not just for you personally, but for future generations. The the future of the world literally depends on you and your friends and your kids understanding how dangerous that path is. And I think that that, that I don't think that that is that crazy. But you you can't get people to change their behavior about what they're going to say to their children, or if they're you know K through 12 teachers, what they're going to say to their students. You can't get them to have that kind of conviction if they don't understand the stakes. So I wrote this book to help people understand the state. Well, I certainly came away from it with a, with a much enhanced appreciation of the stakes. And I think it's a, a very valuable book. I'm, uh, I'm very glad you wrote it. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about it today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you get not only our gratitude, but a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each week. And supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or visit the support page on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes, which is easy to do right there in your podcast app. Word of mouth really is the best advertising, and we greatly appreciate it. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes or whatever other podcast app you're listening to on also really helps. And hey, if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just Want to say hi? You can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.